Thank you for joining us at Daybreak Church. We exist to share the story of God with people so people can belong to the story of God. In this series, Morning, Noon, and Night, we're looking at the constant call of Jesus to be with Him, become like Him, and do what Jesus did. This call of discipleship, whole life submission to His way of living is always before us. As Dallas Willard says, we don't drift into discipleship. It is a every moment, day in, day out, morning, noon, and night choice of saying yes to Jesus and His way, His truth, and life before us. This series, we are looking at the different rhythms of Jesus that help form us, living in the fullness of God's grace, relinquishing our false self to live in our true identity in Jesus, to worship Him fully, letting go of all other idols, to hold Him alone, openness to God's will and leading, sharing our life with others, hearing from God, and incarnating Jesus as we go about our life. This all-of-life devotion to the one who calls us to pick up our cross and follow Him, morning, noon, and night. We pray that this message helps you lean more into the story of God and ask yourself, what is one step I can take today in obedience to surrender my life to Jesus more? Thank you for listening and enjoy. Um, we're looking at um, kind of the, I think we're probably the fourth or fifth, we're in the fifth teaching piece talking about sharing. What does it look like for me to share my life with others? Because we live in a culture um, more and more that's becoming designed for privacy. More and more that we're, we're pulling ourselves further away from community, further away from being in true relationship with one another. We've been talking the last few weeks about the importance of our relationship with God, and this morning we're going to be looking at the relationship that we have with one another in relationship with God. So the primary that we want to keep um, at the center, we've been talking uh, about this again through morning, noon, and night, walking in the rhythms of God's grace. We want to keep company with Jesus, and it's a wonderful thing to keep company with Him, but our faith is not meant to be private. Um, this is something that I remember growing up hearing as a kid so often. Uh, you've probably heard this, but you might even feel this this morning, uh, that it's, it's just me and Jesus. Nothing else matters. How I am with Jesus, that's all that matters. Me and Jesus. But you and I are meant to live in community in the same way that God does through the Trinity. And, this, and so this concept of community, we learn what it is to to live life vulnerably, we learn to live life generously, and to receive from one another. The idea of living life with and for other people is very countercultural to our current world. But this is something we see Jesus focusing on and grabbing us to. So this morning, our focus is going to be looking at this life meant to be shared with one another. So before we go any further, would you join me for a word of prayer? Jesus, we come so thankful for this moment, God, that we would slow ourselves from the busyness of our week. I know that each and every one of us has come into this place with different thoughts, different fears, different weights, different burdens, different hopes, different joys, but that we can come into this place not by accident, that your spirit longs to meet with us. And so Jesus, I ask this morning that as we look through your word, that we look at this necessary understanding of doing life together, sharing the gift of life that you've given to us with one another. Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts this morning to receive a fresh look at what family can mean, should mean, does mean, under the weight of following Jesus. God, I ask that you would help me preach this morning with clarity for us to see you and see you alone, to see your heart, to see the way that you call people far from you. 
Jesus, we love you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' beautiful and precious name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. So we're taking notes this morning. The sermon in the sentence is this. Fulfilling the will of God and the fullness in our life. Fulfilling the will of God and the fullness in our life is found sitting together with our brothers and sisters at the table set before us. Fulfilling the will of God and the fullness in our life is found in sitting at the table with our brothers and sisters at the table set before us. I wanted to do the message a little bit in reverse this morning because I want to spend quite a bit of time in Scripture um, talking about the practices we've been looking at over the last several weeks as a church, morning, noon, and night, walking in the rhythms of grace. There are practical things the early church and churches for the last 2,000 years have done to help facilitate, grow, and build these disciplines um, to, to grow like Jesus. And so when we talk about sharing, talk about community, there's some practical disciplines uh, that the early church has practiced that we practice as well. One of those is growing to share our testimony. Um, and so, uh, real quick, if you are breathing right now, would you raise your hand for me? Okay, those of you who aren't, person next to them, nudge them, make sure they're breathing, they're alive. Um, if you are breathing, if you have a pulse, you have a story. You have a story. One that is being written, either growing closer to Jesus, or one that currently is being written and walking away from him. We all have a testimony. The testimony is kind of a scary church word. I'm like, oh, I don't have a testimony. I don't have, I don't have, what, what's my testimony? How do I share my testimony? We try to make it simpler. You have a story about God's glory that is meant to be shared. And so a challenge for us is growing as a people that can tell good stories. Now, when I say tell good stories, I'm not saying lie. As my wife often says, she's like, you can always make a story that's good enough and then you like to make it crazy. There's somebody's not gonna believe you. You add extra numbers. And she's like, you're like a fisherman, like you tell those stories, like it was this big, it was amazing. But we're called to tell stories, tell good stories. And so this is the power of testimony. That you would grow as an individual, knowing what God is doing in your life. And this is a hard practice. Because we live in a world of, of negativity, like God's not doing anything, I don't know what's going on. There's a people who would grow. And knowing our testimony, being able to share our story with others. Another level of sharing and community that we work out as a church is through dinner parties. Being with one another on a weekly basis. Eating, sharing our story, hearing about Jesus, praying with one another. Doing life with one another. Another way that we practice this specific discipline is through the art of hospitality. Now, some of us are incredibly gifted at this. Some of us struggle. Um, Stacey and I, whenever we train our volunteers for dinner parties, we have this really simple rule for hospitality. I'm going to let everybody in right now. When you open your home, two major things that you should do. Okay, The first, make sure that where people are going to sit, they can sit comfortably. Okay, like You don't want like stacks of books. That's me. You have books everywhere. You don't want people to have to move stuff or be awkward when they sit down for anything. The second is make sure your toilet's clean. Hospitality. Real simple. Like, make sure your toilet's clean. Like, that simple. That easy. There's a lot of other stuff that goes into it. But the goal is to break down barriers so that people feel like they are welcomed and comfortable. And so there's these practices that as a church we practice very intentionally. Um, one of our, our core values, two of our core values, root itself in this teaching. First is radical hospitality. We want to go above and beyond. The, the root word for hospitality in Greek means the love of stranger. It doesn't simply mean somebody who's holding a door open, high-fiving, which I love our greeters. That's a small level of hospitality. But it's the extra mile. It's those things that truly welcome in and help somebody feel absolutely loved and cherished, whether they're a strange person or a stranger, that they would experience this affection, experience this connection. The second part of our core value of RISE, radical hospitality, is the intentional community. I don't know about you, but community is hard. Life 
and family is challenging. If I uh, ask any of you to share about the last experience you had, maybe around Thanksgiving or Christmas time with your family, uh, many of us would probably share stories of that uncle, yeah, or that one nephew or niece, or that one time that dad did X and everybody got upset, or when grandpa pulled out the phone and was trying to like live stream everything, yeah. We all have those issues just with family that become a challenge. But there's something that happens with family that we kind of, we all make this statement, well, it's family, I can't really do anything about it, right? Like, I just, I got to put up with them, their blood is what I got to do. Community becomes a choice. Community becomes a choice. It's the people that we see around us that we are truly willing to submit and step into life with them. And so there's a deep intentionality that needs to take place when we talk about community. This morning we're going to be looking at that via, through Scripture and how Jesus builds this family, builds this community. Dr. Gary Brochier says this, that God is family, that God himself is family, that he's as a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is family, and he is creating and making family everywhere he goes. That is the, the nature, the heartbeat of what God does. He makes a people who do not belong, belong to him. And this community, this family that Jesus builds, and is building as he invites his disciples. So this morning, we're going to take a look at that. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. First to Matthew chapter 4. I'll give you a few minutes to turn there. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 21. We're going to take a little journey this morning, uh, looking at how Jesus invites people to this community. And we're going to be looking at some of the, just kind of the nature of what happens in this community as well. Turn to on your phones. It'll probably be up on the, on the screen as well, but I want to make sure we're able to see this well. So starting with verse 18. As he, this is Jesus, as he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. I want to pause for just one second. Um, I, I was, this morning as I was reading over this, um, I, I noticed a pattern, and you're going to hopefully notice this pattern as well in, in Matthew. Um, all the scriptures that we look at, we're going to see this similar phrase, Jesus sees, that he saw, he sees the people. And this understanding of how God sees is really important because he sees what we don't see. I want to dive into some old, old Testament text. God sees the heart of man. And so we look at this. Jesus sees individuals and sees something in them that they themselves don't yet see or don't believe to be true. And so like out of the gate, we see this instance where Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee and he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew, they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Now, I don't know about you, so I know Dave fishes. Dave's a big fisherman in the back. Um, like, that's probably weird. Like, you're fishing, and some just, you're out on the boat casting, you're close enough to the shore, and I'm like, yo, David, uh... Follow me, and I'll help you fish for men. And like your response probably is going to be like, wait, what? Like, dude, I'm catching trout. What are you, catch men? That's weird. What are you talking about? So this invitation of what Jesus is saying here is laced with deeper understanding. So they know that Jesus is a rabbi. He's a teacher. And so he makes this statement to them. What he's inviting them into is to do what he does. If you follow me, you will catch men like I catch them. You will catch people like I catch people. You will be inviting people into living and following a way of God that they've yet to follow. And he says, so follow me, and I will raise you up, I will train you, I will teach you to do what I do in inviting people into this story. Now, verse 20 blows my mind. It says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 21 Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father 
and follow him. Turn over to Matthew chapter 8, just a few pages. You can flow past the Sermon on the Mount. We were there for a couple of months this last year. We see a lot of those highlights and go, oh yeah, that was a fun, fun time. Matthew chapter 8, looking at verse 18 through 22. So Jesus has been calling people, men and women. Verse 18, when Jesus saw a large crowd around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. A scribe approached him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, real quick, um, I don't know about you. How many like, we have people who like are salesmen or saleswomen by trade? Like you're trying to make sales. Anybody? No. Okay. Um, or are you just too afraid to raise your hand? Because people be. Do we have any car salesmen in the house? Don't raise your hand on that one. Um, like so, when we think about sales, sales is sometimes challenging, right? But you, you ultimately you want to have a good line to hook somebody, right? This is Jesus is not a good salesman, right here. This guy, this, this, this Pharisee, this individual comes and says, Jesus, I want to follow you wherever you go. I'll follow you to the ends of the earth. And Jesus like, yeah, about that. Man, I don't have a place to lay my head. And foxes have homes. And they're chased. And birds have nests. I have nothing. Like, I don't know about you, but that's like, Jesus like, you sure? You really want to do this? Like, this is what's before you. Not glamour. Not shine. Not amazing. Not like, not a book deal, not an amazing success that the world would say, this is awesome. He's like, this is what it is to follow me. So then as he gives this answer to this individual, another disciple, verse 21 says, Lord, another disciple said, first let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, you can gasp for a second, like, oh, Jesus, that's so rude. This young man just said, my dad died, and I need to go bury him. Well, not quite. It's important for us to understand what's being communicated here. So this young man, is, in the way that he's saying this, is roughly, I want to follow you. I realize this is important, but there's some things I need to take care of. See, my dad's still alive, and while my dad's alive, like I need to help him with business and life. I need to stay in good relationship with him. Because when he dies, if I'm not around, I don't get the inheritance. And so I need to make sure that like, I'm, I'm okay in this life while I want to follow you into this next thing. So is it okay, Jesus, if I like, have one foot in and kind of one foot out? I want to make sure that I'm kind of covering my bases because like, I don't, I don't want to miss out on what, what my family has earned. I don't want to miss out on this inheritance with my earthly dad just to maybe receive this heavenly thing that you're talking about. So can I do, can I do both? Jesus' response to him is, awesome. Let the dead bury the dead. Now, what's important to kind of catch here is when we look at the rest of Jesus' invitation to men and women, to us, what is Jesus offering to people? Life. John 10, 10. I've come so people may have life. Life to his full. Jesus' invitation as we walk through Sermon on the Mount has all been about makarios. What does that word mean? Flourishing. Flourishing. Yay, you guys are great. <laughs> Flourishing. Flourishing in what? Life. So when Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead, he's saying, hey, if you're one of mine, you're alive. And alive people don't need to take care of dead things. Alive people do alive things. Dead things do dead things. And if you're dead, then do dead things. But if you're alive, you're going to do alive things. And I'm not going to have alive things do dead things. So come and do alive things with me. Tracking? So this is the community that Jesus is calling, inviting around him, with him. We see in Matthew chapter um, 8. Flip over to Matthew chapter 9. Just turn a few, well, like, look a few verses over. Matthew chapter 9. 9 through 13. 
So Jesus, as Jesus went on from there, he saw, he catched a thing, like, I didn't even try this. That's what I love about scripture. It's beautiful. As he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth, he said to him, follow me. And he got him to follow him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, so this is Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. Now when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This is a really good question. So Jesus meets this guy named Matthew who's a tax collector. And he says, hey, follow me. I'm going to make you a collector of taxes among old people. I don't know. He gives this invitation. The guy's like, I'm in. I'm in. And so this is what I love about Jesus. We said this a few, few weeks ago. Jesus eats good food with bad people. And so he's with tax collectors. He's with sinners. These are people that, as we see the Pharisees, who are righteous men and women. They're righteous leaders. And they're like, what is this Jesus doing? What is this rabbi doing, fellowshipping, being in community with people who are sinful, people like tax collectors who take advantage of and, and take people for granted? They're always cheating people. Like, what is, the, what is this Jesus doing? Like, how, like, how can they be okay with this? And Jesus overhears this in his response. Verse 12. It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but I came to call the sinner. So we look at this invitation of Jesus directly saying who he's calling to the table, who he's calling into community. This is not the A team. This is the B team, maybe even like the C team. It's just like, I'm calling the people who don't have their stuff together. Like those are the men and women. I'm not only inviting, but I'm going to. Because I want them to experience life. I want them to know my Father's love. I want them to live the Macario's flourishing, full life. And they're not going to do it without my help. They're not going to do it without my life. They're not going to do it without me coming to them. Jesus is more interested, catch this, he's more interested in those who are willing to be committed to what he's after, not those who are simply more mature. Like, this is huge. We're going to see this in just a few minutes. Jesus is all about maturity. He wants us to be mature. But that's not the basis for his invitation to people. Why? Because if it is, it's that you can't follow Jesus. This, if, if it's about maturity first, none of us would ever follow him. They catch this. Because it's about you getting it right. It's about you having all the right answers. It would be about you being able to work yourself into favor with God. And Jesus says, you can't do it. I am the way. I am the life. I am the truth. Just simply follow me, and that maturity will follow. Follow me, and you'll learn from my way. So Jesus is asking out of the gate, not that you have your stuff together. He's saying, will you drop everything you have to follow me? Will you commit your life to follow me? Just trust me. Now, that's a huge ask. I realize that. It's a massive ask. But this is what Jesus is setting out to do as he's inviting men and women to follow him. And people, again, who would not be the choice people for any kind of team I would be building. But that's, that's just me. Flip over to Matthew chapter 10. Before we turn a page or two. Ten, we'll look at verses one, 1 through 4. This is Jesus as he's commissioning 12. The 12, these are the ones who Jesus is giving additional authority to. Summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, 
Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So right here, we have Jesus giving this list of people who are his team. This is, this is Jesus' A team. Okay? Now let's catch the moniker, the, the little tagline, the title that Jesus gives to some of these people. We'll go backwards. We'll start with Judas. This is the dude who's going to betray me. Jesus knows out of the gate, you, you're going to be great for our team. You're going to steal some money. You're going like, to like sell me out to the, to the, to the Romans and to the, um, to the Pharisees. Yeah, this will be great. Like, Judas, come on our team. Catch this. Who did Jesus give authority to? Judas. He gave authority to cast out demons, to heal people. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't, Matthew is intentional here to not make a distinction that Judas is among the twelve. That he has authority and he has power to do the very thing that Jesus has invited him to do. So remember when we talked about maturity versus commitment. We know the rest of the story. Matthew gives us a little foreshadowing here. This is the dude who sells the Savior out. So moving from Judas, we move on and we, we kind of move back up. We see this Simon guy. Simon the Zealot. So this is a tagline. Zealots were, they were terrorists. There's really no other good way to put it. Um, they would set out, they would wait to ambush Romans as they would walk the, walk the streets, they would walk the roads, they would jump all of these Romans, beat them up, kill them, take their money, because they hated being under Roman authority. They were longing and waiting for it to kind of overthrow society so that this, the, the Jewish kingdom could be what they wanted it to be. And so Jesus calls this person, Simon, says, you, Zealot, I want you to follow me. I'm giving you what? Authority and power to do what I do, right? Now, catch this. Just move a few verses back. We see this guy, Matthew, the tax collector. Let's just paint a real quick picture. Who does a tax collector work for? The government. Who's the government? Rome. So Jesus is like, hey, Simon, here's your new brother, Matt. He works for the people you kill. He works for the people you jump. He works for the people that you were dead set against. Why don't both of you follow me? We keep on reading. Jesus actually sends out the 12 on the mission. Can you imagine, like, early morning coffee with the 12? We're just waking up. Like, Peter's probably going to jerk everybody. Let me sit up front because I love Jesus more. <laughs> But then you got Matthew who's like coming down the stairs and like Simon just side eyeing the whole time, watching you grow. Like just wait. Look at you not looking. And then Jesus like, Simon, stop it. Like the tension, this is real, right? Because this is community. This is real life happening. If we're not careful, when we read scripture, we miss out on the real humanity that is taking place with real human being people. Like the Bible is brilliant in helping us see some of these really important dynamics that we quickly skip over. The 12 that Jesus called to give authority and to lead his church were from all walks of life. So catch this. Why does it say Zebedee? I don't know who Zebedee was. I could probably read a bunch of commentaries. More than likely, he was a really wealthy fisherman. Had a huge empire. Like he was in charge of a lot. Because that moniker is connecting him to something that would be important for the reader to understand. Now, I don't know who Zebedee is. 2,000 years later, don't know. Could dig, figure it out. But Jesus is calling individuals like these two men who were at the top. Let's call them CEOs of the company. And then you've got Peter and Andrew who were at the bottom. Two brothers doing the same thing, not making the same amount of money. Not a part of the same ecosystem. Not a part of the same wealth structure. We get this as we look at Jesus' invitation, commissioning the twelve people from all different walks of life. This question, are you willing to commit to the kingdom that I'm building, that I'm sending out to make much of my Father? Now, if this isn't enough to see the craziness of the community that Jesus is calling, turn quite a few pages to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. We're going to read verses 20 through 28. Starting at verse 20. 
So the mother of Zebedee's sons, we got Zebedee back on the scene. The mother of Zebedee's sons approached him, Jesus, with her sons. She knelt down to ask for something. Now, just to kind of help bring a little bit of a picture of this. Um, what's the meme, Patrick, Pam, like when the lady who shows up to like complain at the front desk? The Pam? I don't know. I like in my head this made more sense and now it's coming out. It's not. Uh, what? Karen. I'm sorry, Karen. Not, not this Karen. She's amazing. But this, you see this picture of the mom coming up. She's got the kids with her. And like, you're, there's like the blood pressure starts to go, oh no, what does she want? What's going on? She comes up to Jesus, falls before him, and Jesus goes, what do you want? Like, I'm picturing this. It's like, it's like, brilliant. She's like, what do you want, mom? What's up? What's up? Karen, Zebedee. <laughs> Promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. She approaches Jesus with her sons with a demand. Jesus, so I know you're the Messiah. I know you're about to do some crazy cool stuff. I know you're building the kingdom. I'm all about the kingdom. This is awesome. Like, may it come. It's going to come. You're going to be in charge. But when this happens, I really think that my two sons should be at your right and left. Can they have that position? Can you promise them that? Like, Jesus, they're worth it. They're Zebedee's. Like, they know how to run stuff. Their dad's in charge of a lot of things. We get it. Like, we would be the best for, for being at your right and your left. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? So Jesus right here is giving a little bit of foreshadowing, helping them understand what you're asking of me is something you don't think you can do. There's a cup of suffering that I'm going to drink that will bring about the kingdom. Are you going to drink that cup with me? And they're like, yep, we're able, we can do it. Yeah, we're willing to climb that ladder, Jesus, we got this. He told them, okay, you will indeed drink my cup. But the sin of my right and my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those who, whom it has been prepared by my Father. So Jesus, beautifully and brilliantly says, you're right, as, as my disciples, you're going to drink a cup of suffering. You're going to. But I can't give you the authority to sit at my left and my right. That's a gift that my father decides, my father chooses. So um, here's the reward for following me. Um, it's a cup of suffering, not a, a place of authority and responsibility among other people. Verse 24. When the ten heard this... <laughs> So this is out of earshot of the disciples, the other, the other ten. When they heard about this, they became indignant. That's a Hebrew word for a naughty word, okay? They were not happy. They were, in, they were frustrated. They became indignant with the two brothers. You can imagine, like, we've all been here, right? We've been in these ten situations. So the, the two brothers come over, and they're like, what are you guys doing? Like, how dare you ask that about Jesus? I'm the better one who should be at his right. No, I'm the one who should be at his left. And so this infighting begins to happen in the community, in the family, in the ones who are committed to follow Jesus. Jesus called them over and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. Verse 26, it must not be like that among you. The world around you is always positioning itself to be over and to rule over and to challenge and to dictate and to be a tyrant and to tell folks how to do, what they should do, when they should do it, how they should do it. All of us are fighting for control of other people. And he says it will not be that way among my people. It's not going to be that way in my family. It's not going to happen in this community. It will not be that way among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first 
among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To live in this new community Jesus is creating, to be rooted and reigning under the will of God's kingdom, it calls you and I to a different level of life and to a different level of community. Now catch this. You and I cannot follow Jesus alone. Why? Because he is inviting anyone who would be willing to come. Anyone who's willing to commit and follow after him. Say with me, anyone. Even that one person. <laughs> and you know that one person I'm talking about. Your brain immediately flashes like, not that one person. Oh. I was not, I wasn't going to, well, I went back and forth, but I was going to use this as an analogy, just to rile everybody says up. So Jesus, as he called his disciples, and he sends them out, like to make this as charged as I possibly can, um, it's as if Jesus was saying, hey, Bernie and Mike Pence, go out together. I don't care what your Republican or Democratic view is. Do you follow me? You commit to me. Like you have your ideas and your baggage you've brought with you. Don't worry, you'll drop it at some point as you walk with me. This is true. We look at our life long enough. We've all brought our baggage along with us with Jesus. And as a 35-year-old, when I look back now, I'm like, man, I'm glad that I let some of that stuff go. I still have some stuff that I cling to. That Jesus is continuing to break away. See, those who follow Jesus that said yes. And catch, not everybody said yes to Jesus. Like we see in scripture that some went off to go do other things. Some people left him midway. So not everybody's following after Jesus. They understand the invitation and they're not willing to commit to it. So we're at different stages of maturity across socioeconomic lines, racial dynamics, political persuasions. All of us have a different way of approaching life and society. Yet all of us hear the same whisper from Jesus, follow me. Leave everything behind and follow me. You're going to bring your stuff with you. I get it. You think you've got to cling to all of that stuff. You think that's where your identity is. That's where your security is. But don't worry. As you follow me, you'll learn what it means to be a child of God. And you'll learn to let those things go. You'll learn to release some of those things to follow me as a full, true disciple. So the end goal was to grow and mature. That's his end goal. His, his apprentices, his disciples, do what he did, ushering in God's kingdom. So this is a community, the family Jesus builds and is building. And he invites you and I to, to gather around tables, time, truth-telling, teaching, trust, talking to one another. Under true transformation, those were a lot of T's. I hope you were trying to write those down. But this is what Jesus invites us to gather around this, to experience transformation with him and with others. There's not a lot of formulas in Christianity um, that, that we try to make them. We try to create formulas so that we can grow and become better followers of Jesus. There is one formula that I found to be true uh, when it comes to our maturity and our transformation. Um, and if you want to write these down, you can. It's... It, it's silence plus solitude. Silence and solitude. When I get away from all the noise, I can hear from the Father. And also that's solitude. And when I silence, when I hush my soul and the noise around me, I can hear from God in a way that I can never hear before. So silence and solitude. Regular time away from culture, away from the mess, away from the norm, so that we can truly hear who God is calling us to be. Silence and solitude. The introverts in the room are like, yeah, I love that. And community. Silence and solitude. Being away from people. And the opposite. Being with them. And the extroverts are like, yay, community, let's just have a party. It's going to be great. Together, this formula shapes us. Time away 
with the Father. We see this in Jesus' life. Time and time again, he would go away early in the morning to be alone by himself, to hear from the Father, to be in relationship with him, to be encouraged and built up in his identity of who he is, who God was calling him to be. And then what would he do? He would walk back down the mountain to be in relationship with 12 knuckleheads who were constantly, one of them's going to betray him at some point, Another one's a zealot. He's having to put the sword away, Simon. Stop beating people up. Quit, quit fighting with Matthew all the time. Stop having those debates over coffee. We've got a kingdom to build. We've got people to tell about the kingdom that is near. So this silence and solitude doing community together. But if we're honest, we're scared of both of these. Many of us in this room are deathly afraid to step into the quiet. Deathly fearful to slow down enough to hear our own thoughts and to hear what the Father may actually say over us. And then the rest of us are terrified when I say let's enter into the community to do life with one another, to be found out, to be known. So we have this real fear to be fully known by God and also be fully known by others. And here we want to talk about those. I get it. Like, people can be really jerky. They can hurt you. Many of us in this room, if we took it, if we took a poll, like, we've been hurt by people. We've been hurt by being open. We've been hurt by welcoming people into our life. I get that. I get that it's hard. But this is still the way Jesus invites us into truly knowing him. Some of y'all are more in the FOMO camp, the fear of missing out, yeah? And then some of you are more in the JOMO, the joy of missing out. So I'm like, thank God I don't have to go to that party, woo! So we find ourselves on both camps here. Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, says this, let him who cannot be alone be aware of community. Let him who is not in community be aware of being alone. Each by itself has profound perils and pitfalls. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. And the one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. It is not one or the other. But it is both. Bonhoeffer also writes, The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. I remember reading this about seven or eight years ago and just burrowed it into my head, knowing that if Stacey and I were setting out to create a community, a family, that if my vision was to love this perfect ideal of what a community could be, it would crush every one of us. Because why? We're not going to measure up to it. Many of us are going to fail. Some of us are going to strive for it, and it'll be great. And that'll be like three of us. And that's not the kingdom I'm after. That's not the church that I long to build. It's not the community of men and women who want to fall in love with Jesus. And so we came to this point of like, okay, do I love the ideal or do I love the people? And we see this with Jesus as he invites people to him. So we all have our excuses Many of our excuses rest in our inadequacy. We feel like I'm not enough. What can I really bring to the table? Like, who would really want to know me and know my story? We have our independence. Many of us are like, there's no way I'm going to give my time up to somebody else. I've worked hard to be alone. I've worked hard for these things to lock myself away and to not be in relationship with people. And then some of us just have deep idealism. You can write this down if you're a note taker, this will bless somebody. Your idealism will quickly become your idol. Your idealism will quickly become your idol. It'll become the thing that you worship and the thing that you sacrifice everything else on. When we talk about community, we do have this ideal in our mind that we're looking for. But hear this. Community is not connectivity. 
Community is not connectivity. It is not about how many Facebook friends I have. It is not about how many likes I'm getting, how many little hearts pop up on Instagram. I don't know what happens on Snapchat, because I think it's of the devil. So whatever happens on Snapchat that makes you feel loved, I have no idea what that is. TikTok, all that stuff. Man, I just, and I feel like the old crap, I'm going to wear the Mr. Rogers sweater. I'm like, just being an old man up there yelling about stuff. No, but like, I don't need to be distracted in life, right? And so we're after, we feel that connectivity is community, right? That's why we'll go out and we'll, like, this breaks my heart when I say this. That's why we'll go out by ourselves to dinner and take a beautiful picture. We'll doctor it up. And then when we get 3,000 likes, we're like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's awesome. I ate by myself, and then 3,000 people thought it looked awesome. Instead of being in relationship with people, sharing those meals, sharing those times together, community is not connectivity. And catch this one, community is not chemistry. I cannot tell you how many times as a pastor when I hear people tell me, like, I just want to be with people like me. That's not community. That's narcissistic. That's like, ugh, I don't want to be, I don't want to be around people like me. Like, I realize how much of a mess I am. I can't handle, like, and if y'all were honest, you couldn't handle two of me. Like, that would be a lot. I licked, like, where's Matt? Like, he had icing on his finger. He had icing on his finger. Like, from, from, a, from a donut. He's like, you want to buy the donut? And I licked his finger. I don't know what was going on. It just happened. We're weird, right? Like, I mean, let's be honest, just to help everyone in this room, look at the person next to you and say, you're weird. It's true, you're weird. You're weird. I'm weird, I get it, I know it. The sooner we can become okay with that, we can come to grips with that, the sooner we can truly begin to open up and do life really together. Because at that point, we no longer have to hide from one another. We no longer have to pretend like we have our stuff together. See, Jesus is not after chemistry. We see that with the ones that he chose. I mean, that's chemistry. Like, I know Ryan does, uh, uh, Ryan Cohen does this stuff with chemicals. Like, that level of chemistry is a cocktail waiting to blow up in your face. Right? Hey, you're a tax collector. Hey, this guy murders your friends. You guys would be great in a small group together. Let's have you guys sitting at the same table. Hey, Zebedee's. I know you guys are really rich and have all these nice cool things and you judge people. Why don't you hang out with these two poor smelly fishermen? Right? Like this, this is the table that Jesus said, hey, come on over, chemistry, don't really care. We're after community. We're after family. Because everyone deserves a seat at the table of God. Now, this table that he invites us to, there's an invitation to commit and submit ourselves to him. So worship team comes forward this morning. I want us to just be aware of this community, this invitation that Jesus has for us, what he is inviting us into, the level of community that he is asking us to submit ourselves to, to, to die to ourselves, to, to say, Jesus, man, who you put me with, where I found myself like, I'm here in Kenosha. That is immediately a part of my community. I'm downtown. That's a part of my community. I'm, I'm at this church. That is a part of my community. I'm committing and submitting myself to Jesus, the one who has come and who invites me and invites others to sit at this table. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2 real quick. It was awesome. I opened right to it. Didn't always happen. Didn't even have a little note there. All right. Acts chapter two, verse forty-two. This is this is what Jesus invites us to. They say me, me. I devoted myself to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in 
common community. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the, the sessions and pro, distributed the possessions and property among those who had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple. They broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. I love the simplicity and beauty of this passage as it invites us to see the radical community that is stitched together and held together by the Holy Spirit. That is held together by a God who lives in community. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father's vision and beauty to invite people to a table. So much so that he would give his only son to make a way for all to be able to come and sit at that table. And the Holy Spirit to be sent from the Father that rested on Jesus to empower, to live within and call us sons and daughters. Making us alive and well with Jesus. This is the invitation to belong to this kind of community. And I get that it's hard. I get that it's a challenge. But there's life to be had here. Real life. This side of the grave. To experience the love of God. To experience a flourishing reality of His mercy and grace flowing over us. This is the story that God invites us to. So this morning as we worship and declare this via worship, I just ask that your spirit would process, Jesus, this is my story that you invite me to, to be a part of relationship and community with people that I may not get along with everything, but yet you empower me to love them and to be loved by them because you love them and you love me and you are our Father and if we have any commonality, that is the most important one. That you are our Heavenly Father. And so I want to invite us to stand as I pray. That you just worship the Spirit and the truth this morning from this rootedness. To say yes to Jesus. To commit yourself to His way. To have a seat at His table. A table of grace. Jesus, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for... We pray that this message helps you lean more into the story of God and ask yourself, what is one step I can take today in obedience to surrender my life to Jesus more? Thank you for listening.